0: Please turn with me to Mark Thirteen, Mark Thirteen. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And moving on to verse uh, 28. (coughs) Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words Shall not pass away. Amen. The Lord bless the reading of his holy word. We are studying the gospel according to Mark, and the present place we are in is the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13. It has been six weeks since we have been in this chapter, and therefore a brief review would be helpful for us all. In verses 1 to 4, Jesus Christ has promised that the temple, not one stone, will be left standing. And so the disciples ask the time, when, and the significance, the sign, of these things. So when and how shall we know these things will come to be? Then in verses 5 to 13, Jesus Christ teaches that tribulation will exist until the end of time. And the end will not come until the universal spread of the gospel in all nations. Then in verses 14 to 23, he reveals the sign of the destruction of the temple. The abomination of desolation, Luke tells us, as the Roman Gentile army coming in to defile the holy place. And this was, of course, fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans entered Jerusalem and destroyed and defiled city and temple. Then in verses 24 to 27, Jesus Christ predicts the public, visible second coming. When he comes, it will be the end of all things, With the conflagration of everything, that's the burning up of heaven and earth. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The nations will tremble because they will face judgment. And the elect will be gathered by angels as we go to be with Christ in heaven forever and ever. But now from verse 28 to the end, Jesus Christ leaves the signs of these events and turns to the timing of the events. We know this because the word when is used throughout. For example, verse 28 and 29. We are to know, it says here, uh, sorry, now learn a parable of the fig tree when her branch is yet tender, And verse 29. So in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass. And then verse 32 to 33, When will this happen? But of that day and that hour knows no man. And verse 33, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. So verse 28 to the end of the chapter is not dealing with the signs of these events, but the when of these events, the timing of these events. Today, we will focus on the first section, 28 to 31, and then next week, Lord willing, we will look at verse 32 to 37. So verse 28 to 39, 31, sorry, when will these things B in this section we understand three things one the parable of the fig tree, two the promise to this generation, and three the certainty of Christ's word. So, first of all, then the parable of the fig tree. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. Jesus Christ is no longer predicting the sign of events, he now wants to teach a lesson to his disciples. And this word learn here is important. Learn. It is the same word for disciple. It's an imperative mood, so it's a command that is to be obeyed. Learning in the Bible does not merely mean listen to teaching, agree with the teaching, and then move on with your life. Learning in the Bible means actively engage your mind so that you understand the message and then make that message practical in your life as you obey Christ's teaching. That's what the Greek word includes. Not just agreeing with the mind, but applying it to your entire life. And this is why the Bible teaches true believers are disciples. Men, women, and children who by faith hear and read the word of God put every mental effort to understanding it, obeying every command, and seeking to apply the Bible to all of life. And we see this in the Great Commission, do we not? Well the exact same word learn is used. Matthew twenty eight, nineteen. Jesus says, all power and authority is given to me. i the king in head. Now go and teach or disciple, same word, all nations. They'll be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So a true disciple, a true believer, is someone who learns, puts every mental effort to understand the Bible and obey whatsoever the Bible says. And so if we say, I am a Christian, I am a believer... If we hear God's word, if we read God's word and we're not obeying God's word and we're not applying it to our lives, then we're false professors. But if we are applying God's word to our lives, then it's the evidence of being true believers. James chapter 1 is a, a very vivid illustration of this. James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do you see that? So if you're listening and hearing God's word and agreeing with it, but you're not obeying it, you're deceiving yourself. You're a false believer. Then it gives an illustration. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and forgets what manner of man he was. So you look at the the mirror, you pay attention to the mirror, then you go away and you just forget about it. But here's the blessing. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed. So when you hear the word by bi- the bi- sorry, when you hear the word learn or disciple in the Bible, it's not mere, I agree with the teaching. It includes that, but it goes way beyond that. I agree with the teaching, it is God's truth, and I'm going to obey, and my whole life is going to be changed and shapened. By the word of God. Is this you? Is this me? When you read the Bible in your own home, when you hear it preached in a sermon or at a conference or in audio or what have you, are you saying, this is God speaking. This is the voice of my shepherd. And by his grace, I'm sincerely seeking to apply God's word to to my life if you are someone who is sincerely doing that be encouraged be assured that the work of grace is in your soul but if you are someone who can say categorically I am not applying the Bible to my life take heed you may be deceiving yourself and therefore repent And believe in Christ and start to believe, listen and obey the Holy Word. So Christ here wants his disciples to learn, be discipled and obey. Now his lesson is in a form of a parable, a very short parable. It's concerning a fig tree. Now, when I was studying this passage, it's interesting how many people just spiritualize the fig tree. They look at fig tree, they look for the Bible, concordance, exegesis. Where does it say fig tree in the Bible? And whatever they like to find in the Bible about fig trees, they apply here. But Jesus is simply talking generically. How do we know that? Because when you read Luke chapter 21, verse 29... It says the parable of the fig tree and like all the trees. So he's only given the fig tree as an example. Like imagine if I said, now let me tell you the story about an orange tree. But it applies to any kind of fruit tree. So don't go looking for deep allegorical spiritualization of the fig tree here. A fig tree, an orange tree, an apple tree, a general fruit tree. You come to a fruit tree, such as a fig tree, and you'll notice that in the spring, something begins to happen. You see, in the winter, all the, fruit, all the leaves are off, they're dead. But when the spring comes, the branches become tender. And soft sap and life starts to reinvigorate the tree. And then leaves begin to sprout. Now when you see such a tree with soft tender branches and leaves sprouting, you know something. Summer is coming. Summer is coming. And then in verse Uh, 29, he applies the parable. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. So as a fig tree's tender branches and leaves are a sign that summer is coming, So, when you see all these things, it is a sign of confidence and assurance something is coming. Now, before we look at all these things, I simply want to look at what is coming. And again, you don't have to guess or speculate. Scripture interprets Scripture. And what does the parallel account in Luke chapter 21, verse 31 say? Turn there if you would like to see it for yourself. Luke twenty-one, thirty-one. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. So we don't have to guess. So just as the fig trees have been soft branches and leaf sprouting is the sign and confidence summer is coming, so when you see all these things, you know, with assurance that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is the uh, rule and reign of Jesus Christ. But when you see the kingdom of God in the New Testament, you cannot see kingdom of God and say it means the same things everywhere. It has different angles, different perspectives. For example, in John chapter 3, the kingdom of God is invisible. It is simply speaking of those who are regenerate. Except ye be born again, ye cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's a spiritual kingdom that's invisible that you only experience through the new birth. But that's different to Matthew 13 and Matthew 25. It's a visible kingdom mixed with believers and unbelievers. In Matthew 13, this kingdom has wheats and tares. In Matthew 25, it has wise and foolish virgins. It has slothful and um, hard-working servants. It has sheep, and it has goats. So it's mixed. Or, sometimes the kingdom of God is here and now. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is near. But sometimes the kingdom of God is future, and the consummation. Matthew 25 again, where on the day of judgment, heaven is described by Jesus Christ as, Come ye, blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom. That's the eternal heavenly kingdom. So you can't come to a phrase like kingdom of God and say it means the same things at all times. It has different aspects and different angles. So how do you know what part of the kingdom of God is happening here? Context. Always read context. And in Luke's context, is there anything else drawing nigh? And if you look at verse 28, something else is drawing nigh. Your redemption is drawing nigh. And we looked at that a couple of sermons ago. This redemption is not the redemption that's on the cross, but it's the redemption in the future. And in Romans chapter 8, that redemption is the redemption of your bodies, the resurrection of the dead. And so the kingdom of God here is the future final state of the kingdom of God, what we call the kingdom of glory when Christ returns, where in the second coming the dead shall rise, his elect will be with him body and soul forever and ever in the eschatological kingdom, where they'll they'll be placed in the Father's mansions and be with Christ forever and ever and ever. And so when you see these things, it's the sign of assurance and confidence that the kingdom of God in its final state will come. But there's a word here that many people get tripped up over. Near. Near. Well, the parable itself says, you know that summer is near. Then verse 29 So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things shall come to pass, know that it, that's the kingdom of God, is near, even at the doors. And people interpret near, or nigh, or approaching in the Bible, meaning immediately, or at any time, at any moment. And then there's two extremes applying this. Extreme number one is the full preterist who says that everything was fulfilled in AD 70. That's wrong. But then you have the futurist or the premill, who believe that Jesus Christ can literally come at any time, at any moment. And both are wrong. Because near, nigh, approaching in the Bible doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean immediately. It means something that's expected. It means something that's certain. It means something that is so expected you must be watchful and alert. That's what the word nigh or near means in the New Testament. Let me prove that to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, speaking of the day of judgment. You see the day nigh, near, approaching. That was 2,000 years ago. Then verse 37, for yet a little while he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The Bible would not make any sense whatsoever if this word near, nigh, approaching ever meant extremely soon. It simply means expectant and certain. Or Revelation 22 verse 10 when it's speaking of the second coming. For the time is at hand. Same word, nigh, near, approaching. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. Because it doesn't mean what people say it means. The Greek word means expectant, certain, be alert and watchful. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Same Greek word. Near, nigh, approaching. That was 2,000 years ago. It doesn't mean what people think it means. The Greek means expectant, certain, to be alert. Hence it says, "Therefore, be sober and watchful unto prayer." Romans thirteen eleven, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. That gets to the idea of how we should interpret it. It's so true. It's so expected, it's so certain. It's nearer now than it ever was before. Therefore, expect, it's certain. Be alert, be watchful. James chapter 5, verse 9. Because it uses the word here, it is nigh even at the door. Oh, it's at the door, it's knocking. Therefore, Christ can come at any time. James 5, 9. Grudge not one another against one another. So don't hold grudges against each other, brethren. Lest ye be condemned by God. Behold, the judge stands at the door. But judgment hasn't come yet. James is saying, brothers and sisters, get along, forgive one another. Don't hold grudges or you'll be condemned by God. The judge is at the door. It's certain. Expect God to judge. Be watchful. Be alert. Therefore, forgive one another. So when you see the word nigh, near, approaching, soon, little, while, quickly, all these synonyms of second coming, it does not mean it can happen anytime. any time. In a moment, it's going to happen immediately or immediately. Christ is returning. It doesn't mean that. We can't put 21st century understanding or 20th century understandings into the Bible. The Bible means what it means and the word means expectant, certain, therefore be alert. And so the parable says this, when you see these things happen, it is the sign of guarantee that the kingdom of God will be fulfilled in the second coming. That's what the parable means. When you're careful and close and consistent with the text, this is what it means. And the purpose here is to give confidence, comfort and hope to Christians. Think of the tribulation they're going to face. Think about all the suffering and persecution and wars and famine and pestilence. What's going to give you comfort and hope? the promise, the guarantee. Just as the fig leaves come, you know without a doubt summer's coming. Just as you know when all these things happen, you know without a shadow of a doubt the kingdom of God will be consummated. So it's a word of comfort and hope for the people of God. We'll apply this at the end. But what does it mean, all these things? All these things are the sign of, Of summer coming. This is where verse 30 comes in. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. This is the number one most controversial verse in this entire chapter. This is where the great debate in the entire chapter often stands. Liberals love this verse. Ever since the 19th century, liberals from Germany spreading around the world say all these things speak of everything in this chapter including the second coming and the second coming did not come to pass in the very people's generation Therefore, Jesus and the Bible are false. But what about the response from true Bible-believing Christians where there's no uniformity here? And your understanding of this verse is not down to your school of interpretation. Historicists disagree with historicists. Partial preterists disagree with partial preterists. And futurists disagree disagree with futurists. So your school of discipline of how you interpret this chapter does not determine how you interpret this verse. There's different viewpoints in each school of interpretation. That's why it is so controversial. And the controversy just simply comes with what does all these things mean and what does generation mean? So let us answer that. What does all these things mean? And what does generation mean? First of all then, all these things. Some people say all means all. Therefore, everything in this chapter, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Lord, and the end of the age, all these things, Other people think all these things is determined by context and refers only to the destruction of the temple and excludes the coming and the end of the age. I believe if you have a close, careful, consistent interpretation, the latter is correct. All these things means all the things concerning the destruction of the city and temple and does not refer to the coming or the end of the age. Let me prove that to you in three ways. First of all, all does not mean all, all the time. Now, when have you heard that phrase before? You've heard that phrase before whenever you've heard Calvinistic versus Arminian debates. Where Arminians insert, all means all, all the time, and you go to a text and it says all, therefore Jesus Christ died for all people, every single individual. And the Calvinist says, you're not interpreting your Bible correct. All is the my context. All does not mean all, all the time. It's amazing how many Calvinistic futurists and partial preterists completely ignore that here. But we must be consistent. All is determined by context. And when you read the context, all these things is a technical term for the destruction of the city and temple. You see that somewhat clear in Mark but extremely clear in Matthew. Let's look at Mark first of all since we're in this chapter. Look at the verse 7 and verse 13. It's not speaking about all things. It's speaking about the end. When you shall hear the end... The hear of the wars and rumours of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. So the end. And verse 13 is the same thing, is speaking of the end. But when it talks about the destruction of the temple, it never uses the word end or coming. It always uses the word all things. For example, verse 23. But take heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. And you look at what's that context? It's the abomination of desolation, verse 14 and following, destruction of the temple and city. All things. In verse 26, when it's speaking of the second coming, it speaks of coming, coming in the clouds of great glory and power. It never says all things. And so when you come to verses 28 to 31, All these things is not speaking about end, and it's not speaking about coming. It's speaking about the destruction of the temple and the city. But as I said, where Mark is somewhat clear, Matthew's crystal. Turn with me to Matthew 23. That's the background to 24. Matthew 23 Now, Matthew 23, verses 32 to 38, it's speaking of the judgment of Israel. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers, serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send you prophets, wise men, you crucified them. So on and so forth. Then, verse 36. All these things shall come upon this generation. See the language there? Nothing about coming, nothing about end, the destruction of the city. And the temple comes in verse 38 Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2. What do we have? The destruction of the temple. Jesus went out, departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? All these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. See the technical language. All these things is destruction of the temple. And then they ask a question and there's a distinction here. Verse 3. Tell us, when shall... These things be, first thing, and coming and end of the age. All these things is a technical reference to the destruction of the temple. And then when you go to verse 33 and verse 34... It's the same language as Mark, but just read it just for uh, just to press it home. So, likewise, ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. All these things is a technical term to the destruction of the temple, excluding coming and end. And third argument is the distinction. In Matthew, since you're already there, look at verse twenty four, sorry, Matthew twenty four, verse six. Look at the distinction. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. There's a difference between all these things and an end. And then turn again to Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter thirteen. Verse 30, fairly I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be done. And then look at the adversity in verse 32. But that day, that's the day of the Lord, the day of the coming. We'll prove that next week. No man knows that day, which is different to all these things which you are to know. And so through this, All these things is not referring to second coming. It's not referring to the end of the age. It's referring exclusively and only to the destruction of the city and the temple. Secondly, what is generation here? Some people say it means the race of the Jews. So the Jewish race will always live. Some say it's the Generation in the future, just before Christ returns. But the right interpretation is generation who live in the time of Christ. Again, careful, close, consistent interpretation. First of all, the word never means race. The word never means race. In fact, there is another word that does mean race. And when race is being taught in the Bible, it uses that particular word and never this word. Let me give you an example. Mark seven twenty six: The woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by race or nation. It's a different word. Philippians 3, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the race of Israel. If the Holy Spirit wanted to say these Jews as a people group, the Holy Spirit would have used the word for race and not the word for generation. The word itself always means a group of people living in the same time period. Just like we use the word generation X, generation Z, generation this, that, and the other. It always means that. For example, in the Old Testament, more is righteous before me in this generation, this people living right here right now. Or Exodus one six. Joseph died and all his brethren, and all that generation died, that people living at the same time. The New Testament's the same. Luke seventeen twenty five. But first must he suffer in many things and be rejected of this generation, the people living at this time. Or Mark eight twelve, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. You can just look at this word again and again. It means a people who live in the same time period. And when you look at the context of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, it is this very generation in the time of Christ. We already read Matthew chapter twelve verse thirty six. Verily, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Not a generation in the future, when before, just before Christ returns, but this very generation who have rejected me. And look at verse 28 to 31 as a whole. Look at the language of ye and you. Verily, I say unto you, that this, not that, not to come, This generation shall not pass. So generation means the people living in the same time period and it's the same time period of Jesus Christ on earth with his disciples. So let's put this all together. The fig leaves with tender branches is the sign of assurance that summer is definitely coming. Summer's not come yet. You might have to wait for summer. It might even be four or five months away. But it's the guarantee summer is coming. Likewise, when you see the destruction of the temple, know it is the sign and confidence that Christ will return in his kingdom of glory and fulfill all your hope. Let me tell you truly, assuredly, This very generation, this is when. It's going to happen this generation, when. All these things, the destruction of the temple and the city will happen when? This generation. Now let's fulfill this, sorry, apply this. The certainty of Christ's word. The first application is that Jesus Christ is our glorious prophet. You remember we read Deuteronomy chapter 18 and it promises a prophet to come, not just like any prophet like Isaiah or Jonah, or, but the prophet who knows God face to face, who reveals reveal the very word of God to everyone. How do you know he's true though? If he predicts something and it doesn't come to pass, stonem is a false prophet. But if he has my words and he predicts, it shall come to pass. And you know he's the true prophet. Christ is speaking AD 33. He is predicting the destruction of the temple within the time period of this generation. What happened in AD 70? Christ's prediction came true. This generation saw all these things, the destruction of the temple. And it says to anyone, God the Father, to his Son, behold, hear ye him. This is the true prophet. He is the Son of God. Listen and obey my Son. And so let us glorify and worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect prophet who reveals God's will. And here we see the prediction coming to pass. If someone's a futurist, they can't have this application because nothing's been fulfilled yet. It's all future. It's still unknown whether Christ's predictions will be true or not. You might believe they are. But it hasn't come to pass yet. You have to wait and see. But if you're a historicist, then you believe it has happened. If you're a partial preterist, you believe the coming and the end has already happened. And that's wrong. But if you're a historicist, you can give full glory to Christ that his prediction was true. The larger catechism says in question 43, How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in his revealing in the church and to the church in all ages by his spirit and word and in diverse ways of administration the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. Do you want to be edified? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know the will of God? Well, here is your prophet Jesus Christ. So every time you open the Bible, Jesus is speaking to you as your prophet. Every time you're in the house of God hearing the preaching of the word and the preaching of the word is faithfully expositing the Bible, it is Christ the prophet speaking to you. Therefore listen, learn, enjoy, be edified, be saved, know the will of your God. Second application, assurance. Remember the point of this. Just as the fig tree is bearing leaves is the assurance of the consummation of the kingdom of God, therefore, all of these things happening is the assurance of the kingdom of God for us. You see, in this world, just as it says, there's going to be persecution, war, famine, suffering, We're personally going to experience that. The world's going to experience that. Imagine you're a Christian right here, right now in Ukraine. Imagine your family's been decimated, your home, your belongings, shelling and mortars and bombing, wars and rumors of war. Where's your comfort? Where's your hope? Where's your anchor? What if doubt sets in? What if the devil tries to attack your faith? Just as I know, when the fig trees bear their leaves, summer is coming. So I know in AD 70, this generation experienced all these things. I know without a shadow of a doubt, the kingdom of God and its fulfillment is coming. I will experience the day when God the Father will wipe away every tear. I'll experience the day when all my sorrow will be turned into joy. I'll experience the day where death and curse is no more, life and blessing forever and ever. And therefore, because Christ says what he says is true and it happened and is fulfilled, I am guaranteed my hope. As Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, in hope of eternal life, Which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And he promises again on the Sermon of Olivet Discourse. And therefore, this coming true is the anchor of the hope of your soul. Third application full confidence in the Word of God. Jesus applies this in verse 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. When you just look at everything, everything seems to be it's going to stand forever. It just seems so certain, so sure, so steadfast. Mount Everest, the Rockies. Everything just seems to be so sure, you know. But it was not. Heaven and earth will pass away. Existence as we know it will one day be destroyed. There will be a renewal and there will be new heavens and the earth. But as we know it now, it's going to pass away. Everything. But there's something that's not going to pass away. The words of Jesus Christ. So you can put your entire life, your eternal life on Christ's words. I know how we need this today. Like I said, the liberals misinterpret this chapter to prove the Bible is not true. Absolutely not. You read this Bible, it is true. People telling us, you can believe the Bible, but you can't believe every jot and tittle. You can believe the Bible, but it's not infallible or inerrant. And you can be shocked by that. Maybe they can give you some wonderful, logical, rational illustrations. And maybe for a moment your faith can be shaken. It can happen. But return to this. My word shall not pass away. Isaiah 40 verse 8. The, gra- the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. It's yea and amen forever. Which means your entire salvation is guaranteed because his word will never pass away. Isaiah 51 6. Lift up your eyes to heaven's. Look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. The earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die like manna. But, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. This is the gospel, and this is the word of God. So no matter what we experience in this life, make this Bible everything. Stand on it. Be confident. Be assured. It is the truth. I remember Jeff Thomas at a conference. I've given this illustration before. His wife was very, very sick and dying and had completely lost her memory. And so caring for her for years, she did not have a clue who he was. I can't imagine how difficult, I cannot imagine how difficult that is. And he wanted to express how foundational the Bible was. He just took up his Bible and did this. A picture paints a thousand words. Then in the suffering and tragedy and heart wake of that experience, this is what kept him. Because it will not pass away. So put all your hope, all your trust in Jesus Christ and every single jot and tittle of the Holy Bible. Let us pray. The stand, please. Father in heaven, Christ is true, his prophecy is true, and his word is true. We pray that every single person in our congregation, from the smallest to the biggest, the youngest to the oldest, we would all believe this with all our heart. Help us to learn as disciples, obeying whatsoever is commanded. Help us to take assurance that Christ's prediction was fulfilled in AD 70 and give us the confidence that summer is near. The kingdom of God is coming. The fulfilment of all things is guaranteed. And therefore we live in the light thereof. Fill us with this hope we pray. Amen.